0: bow again in prayer before we look into the Scriptures. Lord, you are Lord of all, and you are the one who has revealed yourself to us. This is your Word. You have inspired it by your Holy Spirit. You have made known your mind to us, your heart, your plans, yourself. So we pray that we might be taught humbly at your feet today. Make us good learners, we pray. May this portion of your word point us to Christ and to help us understand what it means to follow him and to make much of him and glorify him. May he truly be the one who in our midst today is indeed one who is being magnified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Back in the 1980s, so those of us who were around then, which I guess is a number of us, we went through a rather radical technological transition period. For years and years and years prior to that time, many of us had produced documents using an old-fashioned tool called a typewriter. I know for some of you that's like, what in the world are you talking about? Typewriter, yes. Where we were trying to literally cut and paste documents where we'd type something out and we'd have to paste it on top of something else. And we were using carbon copies of things. We were doing whiteout and correction tape and all that stuff. Then there came the new normal. Here came computers into the world and What an amazing difference that made where you can now edit a document before you printed it. What an amazing change. I mean, people don't realize that was the, I mean, it's so easy we think about it now, but, uh, you know, now we can have all these different fonts, whereas before it was just those letters, right, whatever you had on your typewriter. And then, now you can take the document and you can email it to someone else and they can see that document, they can work on it, read it. It's amazing. Take some time to get used to all those changes, and it takes a while for the transition to take place. I've got a little something I'm throwing away here. This is a floppy disk. That was part of the transition, remember? How you stored information. You can't even find a computer to put a floppy disk in nowadays. Just like when they went through the transition of using iPhones, there were the iPods. Where's an iPod? Nobody uses an iPod anymore. It was a transitional kind of technology uh, where things have changed. So, how does that have anything to do with the book of Acts? I'm going to try and encourage you to think of the book of Acts as a transitional book. A book in which we're going in process here of a spiritual or a redemptive transition that's underway. Think of it this way. You've got 39 books of Revelation in the Old Testament, which means the Old Covenant. That which is predicting or pointing toward Christ the Messiah. Then you have four Gospels in which you hear and read and see revealed the life of Jesus and his actual work of redemption on the cross in the resurrection. And then the book of Acts transitions us beyond that into the launch of the church, which is undergoing all these dramatic changes that now are occurring. And then the epistles help us understand clearly what is the new normal what is to be expected in the New Covenant. So there's lots of changes going on here, and I want us to think of the use of analogy of, and this is going to be a big stretch, so stay with me here, but the Verrazano Bridge. How many of you have ever been over the Verrazano Bridge? Pretty much most of all of you. All right, if you're on the Belt Parkway, and you're on sort of a flat road, you see the massive bridge there, you've got to make your way up to this incredible um, bridge and part of that is to take you up a ramp. And that ramp, you know, it just goes up and up and up and up and up and up and up. And you're like, where are we going here? It gets narrower, all kinds of signs telling you what you're going to have to run into. You're going to have to go here, you have to go there and get ready because you're going to have to face this change of where you're going. And that, I would say to you, is a good analogy of the Old Covenant. It's preparing you for this amazing bridge that's ahead and the bridge as you know anything about the verizon you got two massive towers right and i'm going to say to you i would suggest to you the analogy would be it is the death of christ on one tower is the resurrection of christ to the other and all of that big cable is the life of christ holding all those things together He is alive beginning he comes he was always alive he is uh, the, the uh, incarnation his death his resurrection he continues to live And then coming down there, the gospel holds in place this new reality, and I would suggest to you that the bridge is actually the book of Acts. That because of Christ, now there's a new covenant. There's a transition that's going on. You leave one side, you're going to the other side. Now, don't don't push this too far. Staten Island, I'm not suggesting, is (laughs) glory land. It's not the new covenant. It's not everything. But anyway... Bear with me here. The analogy breaks down in places, but it does lead to the other side. The other side is going to talk about new covenant life. Jesus has done what we could not do, what the law demanded that we do on the one side. Jesus brings us over to the new side where the Holy Spirit now enables us to live differently. He changes us on the inside. It's amazing. Okay, are you with me now? Did you follow that? Okay, some of you freaked out when you got on the bridge, but anyway, okay. Transition is what's going on here. And what you're you're going to see in the book of Acts is that some of the traditions, some of the things that were regulated in the Old Covenant are going to fade away over time. They are going to no longer be practiced the way they were. For example, Acts 10, you recall that Peter, who grew up eating food kosher, He would always follow kosher rules in his eating. He would never eat anything that was not kosher. And he would never dream of going into someone's home who was a Gentile. He wouldn't even think about it. And in Acts 10, the Holy Spirit makes it very clear to him and revealing a vision to him that says, listen, not only are you okay to eat all this food, that's any kind of food, now it's all right, because that distinction is not what's necessary to make you distinct. It's now who you are in Christ that makes you distinct. And therefore, you have the freedom to do that, and you also have the freedom to go into Gentiles' homes because that's where we want you to go to take the gospel to every people, all the people of the world. There's transitions going on there. And the Holy Spirit, in the book of Acts, is working to show that that, that not only Jews, but also Gentiles are now a part of the people of God. They're now being joined together into this church, this one family a people of God, the body of Christ made up of Jew and Gentile. All different kinds of languages, all different kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds, they're all being blended together as an amazing new reality in the New Covenant. And So in the book of Acts, we see Jesus' followers, because of the gospel changing their hearts and lives in this New Covenant reality, they are now carrying forth a discipleship ministry that's seeking to bring other people into this new reality. Discipling from the old to the new is what's happening in Acts. And I want to focus on two ways that happens in this portion of the Word of God in Acts 19, which I'd like to read to you now on page 1322. If you've got your Bible open, follow along as I get my reading glasses out and try to figure out what's in front of me here. Acts 19. It came about that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Transition. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism, John the Baptist. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, in the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying, and there were in all about twelve men. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some of them were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And Paul was performing extraordinary miracles. Now that's an unusual phrase. I thought a miracle was a rather extraordinary event to start with. These are extraordinary miracles works of power or miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or sweatbands and aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And seven sons of one Sceva, the Jewish chief priests were doing this, and the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? The man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued both of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also, those who had believed, kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. I'd like to consider this text in two ways. First of all, I want us to think of the progress of redemption that takes us from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. The progress of redemption from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. This is a unique transitional situation, as I've said earlier. We find all sorts of examples of this transitional things in chapter 18 and 19, really throughout the book of Acts. But as I said last time, I'll give you four examples. We had Paul previously, chapter 18, doing what? Taking a Nazarite vow, which again, nobody's doing that. Nobody needs to be doing that nowadays. But that was Paul having grown up with that. He went back to that tradition and he did that again, uh, cutting his hair, letting his hair grow long. Then he cut it and went back to Jerusalem and had to burn it on the altar. And then we have Apollos at the end of chapter 18, a man who's powerful in his understanding and grasp of the Hebrew scriptures, but he just had not fully understood all about Jesus the Messiah he's still leading up to the Messiah he still has not caught all of the importance of what Jesus had done he's still living under John the Baptist teaching as it were transition he wasn't fully up to speed a third example of this transition in verses 1 to 7 of this chapter chapter 19 have these dozen followers of John the Baptist's They're only familiar with this baptism that John the Baptist practiced of repenting, of having people prepare for the coming of the Messiah and to acknowledge that they need to change. They need to change their loyalty. They need to have a heart uh, cleansing. It was all work that was done preceding the redemptive work of Christ. And they were unaware of the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated. And so these men had never been filled with the Spirit of God. and They had never made the change from the old covenant to the new covenant. And by the way, the New Covenant insists that every true believer has received or is indwelt by the Spirit of God. I can give you many scripture passages, but the most clear one is Romans chapter 8, verse 9, or 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, or 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and on and on. So Paul does what? He speaks to these folks and he says, listen, you need to make the transition from being identified as a disciple of John the Baptist to being a disciple of Jesus Christ the Lord He's the true Messiah. Indeed, Christian baptism, baptism in the name of Jesus, is water baptism that outwardly expresses one's reliance or one's trust or one's faith and devotion to Christ as Lord. So we see that transition going on in this book. And fourthly, we see another example of this transitional element in verse 11 of Dirt chapter 19 where Paul, in this extremely amazing phenomenon is the only way I can describe it, where he is working in his regular job to earn his own income as a leather worker, a tent maker, and so he is obviously uh, dealing with some messy stuff. He's got an apron, he's got a bandana, if you will, over his head. That's like, more like the sweatband, if you will, in today's world. And uh, he lays those down. People take those things and they are going off to sick people and they're bringing that item to touch the body of some sick person and amazing healings are taking place. Now this is, I believe, a unique transitional outward confirmation to authenticate Paul as a true apostle he in truly has the authoritative representative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of the, uh, and so therefore, based on text of scripture, like, and I would suggest you definitely write these in your notes. If you write in your Bible, put it in the margin of this passage. But 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 12.12. 2 Corinthians 12.12 helps us understand these kinds of miracles, what I would call signs. And it says this, 2 Corinthians 12.12. 12. The signs or attesting miracles of a true apostle, that is a true first century apostle, were performed among you with all perseverance, by signs, attesting miracles, by wonders and miracles or works of power. The way to see and verify that this was indeed a true apostle, the one whom Jesus said, these are my true representatives now going forward, are these first century apostles who had seen the resurrected Lord They perform attesting miracles. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 is another text that talks about the fact that they bear witness of these signs and wonders and various miracles and works of power by by distributions of the Holy Spirit according to God's own will. So that is my understanding of what's happening here with Paul. None of us should expect to see this as a normal experience in the church today. And maybe you've unfortunately been put on a mailing list, as I was back in college, which I was just, couldn't believe how many false teachers there were, and so I used to respond to them and get them to get on their mailing list and find what kind of ridiculous stuff they were sending out, just because I was curious. But these false teachers will send out what? Little square pieces of cloth, and they'll say, Put this on your body or, you know, trust God for a miracle and then send it back to me with your donation, right? Send that money back. These are nothing more than mass mailings. They're utilizing a clever gimmick. They're trying to raise funds for some kind of lavish lifestyle. They are to be obviously ignored and never acted upon. They're they're phony, phony baloney. So what's the point I'm saying? The point I'm saying is, that the book of Acts is like being on the bridge. And we're seeing progress being made on this bridge as the unfolding of the gospel goes forward on and on. And therefore, the span is taking these people that we're reading about from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Now, how do we apply this, this first point? Well, thinking back to those transitional times in my own life when technology has been changing, it has really helped me, maybe it helped you too, to find somebody who's fairly knowledgeable to explain how you use the new technology, right? One of the things I do like about Apple products, I'm not here trying to plug Apple products, but they make enough money as it is. But anyway, one of the things I find helpful is that when you buy a product, you can go in and they'll give you instruction on how to use it on the different features about it you used to get a computer in the mail they'd send it to you your own home computer and you had no idea what to do with this thing no one give you instruction you didn't have anybody to help you explain what the buttons you push here or how do you do this or what nobody you figure it out on your own or go online or get a friend or something the problem is if we don't get help with these transitions we're left with great tools but they're not fully utilized I think the same is true in the spiritual realm. If we are not given clear, helpful instruction, if we don't speak the truth in love and be reminded of the great blessings of the new covenant, then we're going to be stuck with lots of legalism, lots of rules, lots of things that we do out of traditions that don't lead us to Christ. Paul was doing this, the ministry of discipleship, Aquila and Priscilla were doing this, used of God, as we said last time we we looked at this passage, to, to focus on the wonders of Christ, the benefits of the new covenant. They were trying to make sure these things were clear to those around them. Much of Paul's writings in his epistles, Peter's writings in his epistles, John's writings in his epistles, it is James in his epistle, written to the first century churches, are meant to do this to help make clear what Christ has done for us so that we might enter into the fullness of all of the blessings that have now we've transitioned into this new wonderful reality of Christ and his wonderful work of redemption. Hebrews is the one that explains to us that we no longer have to do so many of these things that were required. Jesus did it once for all. He was made that one sacrifice, died once for all. And so this idea of explaining these marvelous privileges to those who, are enjoyed, who, are, who enjoy the privilege of being united to Christ by faith, oh, we need to be keep our eyes on Christ. That's what Hebrews says, right? He says, listen, you're going to run this race. Don't get tied up in all these regulations and rules and things that trip you up and cause you to get discouraged and go back into somehow you've got to, to, to do more and do more to be a better person. No, he says, keep your eyes on Christ. Christ, Hebrews 12, on whom our faith depends from start to finish. My friend, God has provided a treasure trove of accurate teaching about the New Covenant in the New Testament epistles. And it is absolutely incumbent upon us to carefully interpret those, to make use those as the lens through which we look at the book of Acts and make sense of what was happening in the book of Acts. So here's my point. If you're on a bridge, let's say the Verrazano, you do not make a U-turn on the bridge. Right? No U-turns allowed on the bridge. And secondly... A bridge is not a place to park a car. The point is this. If you're in transition, you don't go back to where you were. You don't go back to keeping all the rules and regulations of many parts of the Levitical parts of the law in order to somehow think you're going to be right with God. You trust, you rely, you treasure Christ. He's the one you're hoping in. He's the one you're trusting in, not your own performance. And secondly, what? You don't stay in the transition. You move on to what Christ has for you. So that's what I'm hoping we will encourage people to do around us if we're involved in discipling people is to focus people on loving, trusting, and enjoying the richness of all that Christ has done for us. That's really where Christian growth takes place. And that's what Paul and uh, others here in the New Testament were trying to do. All right, second point here, and I don't want to take all of our time on that point here. Let's move quickly to... The progress of redemption, of noticing that as we're discipled, as we're learning truth, as we're seeing God bring more and more revelation to us, it builds over time, we're to be going undergoing a, a process of change and being uh, transformed, a process of redemption as it were, from being hearers of the word to doers of the word. Right? James 1. And one of the evidences of true, genuine discipleship is obedience to Jesus Christ. Obedience doesn't make us a Christian, but obedience is the evidence, the outward evidence of someone whose heart has been changed by the gospel. And that's what Jesus said, right? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So Jesus expects his followers to, to be those who at least are characterized by, not perfectly, but characterized by the general direction of being a person who follows and does what Christ commands. So you ask the question, how do I know if I'm a Christian? How can I be sure I've passed from spiritual death to spiritual life? Well, are you relying upon Christ by faith? And is so, is that faith leading you into truth? Is it leading you into the direction of being a person who is abiding by the truth? Are you moving away from old ways of thinking? Are you moving toward the biblical view of life? Are you abandoning your old ways of ungodly habits, replacing them with godly habits? Are you putting off the old, putting on the new, Ephesians chapter 4? There are several examples of this process uh, that are shown to us here in Acts 19 moving away from old choices, moving away from old ways of thinking, moving away from the former pursuits that that had been something that people used to be uh, aiming for. Look at Apollos. Again, I use him as an example from chapter 18, but he was a powerful speaker, a person who was just, must have been mesmerizing to listen to this guy speak publicly and speaking about the scriptures, but he was lacking in his understanding of the new covenant and what Christ had done. So therefore, what happened? Another person came alongside of him and said, listen, brother, this is what you need to understand to make sense of everything that you've been reading in the Old Testament. And he was what? A humble learner. He was a person willing to say, listen, I do need to be taught. I've got some things that I still need to to, uh, take to heart here and, 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 and think through. And so the question comes to us, what role is the Scripture playing in your day-to-day life in which you have ever are being corrected? or some things that you think or things that you've you're been assuming or things that you've uh, had to run into that you're saying, well, no, let's see, the Scriptures are going to correct me on this because that's not the right way. And So being teachable, having a, a heart that's willing to learn is an evidence of, of a gospel making a difference in our life in discipleship. And then what about the 12 disciples of John the Baptist? I think they were earnest people. I really do. I think they were loyal to John the Baptist, who was talking about being repentant and obviously admitting we all recognize our areas in our life we need to change in. They were looking for a Messiah to come, but somehow they missed that. I don't understand how it could happen, but they didn't really understand all that Christ had accomplished as Messiah. And so here, Paul comes along now and says, listen here, you're confessing your loyalty to John the Baptist and the baptism that he performed. You need to profess boldly and publicly your devotion to Jesus Christ. He's the Lord, not John the Baptist. He's the Lord. You need to be baptized and follow Christ in the waters of baptism. And one of the hallmarks of genuine disciples is outwardly confessing Jesus as Lord, no matter the cost. And I'm telling you, these men who were loyal to John the Baptist, I believe it cost them a great deal to do that. Because think about it. In the Jewish way of thinking among that culture at the time, Jesus was considered to be a person who was scandalized. He died on the cross as a cruel, as a, as a, a criminal The outcasts of society are the only kind of people put on a cross. And so when you embraced him, when you said, I'm a follower of Jesus, they would say, what? And many of their Jewish friends and family members would have probably withdrawn from them and viewed them with scorn and rejected them. But they did what they did as disciples of Jesus. They were affirming their reliance upon Christ as the one who scandalously died and crucified in disgrace, but he was raised in supreme honor and glory, and they're confessing him as Lord. Have you been baptized? If you're a follower of Jesus, have you confessed him as Lord in the waters of baptism? It doesn't make you a Christian, but if you are a person trusting in Christ and you're committed to following him, that's part of what one does in expressing one's outward uh, loyalty and devotion and confessing Him as Lord. And then thirdly, not only is there obedience and the confessing of Jesus as Lord, but if you see this process of redemption or the progress of redemption going on among these early believers, there is this amazing example of, you could either say repentance or you could say consecration, either one. Repentance or consecration? Look at verses 13 to 20. It's an amazing passage in which, again, Ephesus, I don't have time to go in the background of that city, but it's a massive populated city, and there's all sorts of things going on here from the worship Diana, all sorts of sensual, sensuality being celebrated. It's the financial capital of the area. There's all kinds of money being exchanged here, and there's all kinds of spiritual occultic activity going on as well. And here you run into some of these folks who are dabbling in all of that called Jewish exorcists. And they're saying, oh, here's another little trick up our sleeve we can do. Let's take the name of this Jesus, whoever he is, and let's add him to our little magical formulas that we use. And so they're going out hoping to, again, take advantage of people and their vulnerabilities. They're a bunch of imposters and charlatans looking to impress people, gain a following, maybe make some money. And, and we've already seen examples of that in Acts earlier, chapter 8, Simon Magus, and also in chapter 13, Bar-Jesus, other guys. similar kinds of motivations. So it's, it's going on in the culture there. Their foolish attempts backfire on them. I love it. They don't realize what they're up against here. And they're left running for cover. They're left running for protection out of there. They're over their heads. And when that was revealed, when that became known, that the power of Christ and the power of the gospel, which is being proclaimed to them, and by the way, what did Paul say to the Ephesian believers? Our battle is not with other flesh and blood, but with what? Spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. Very interesting in the background of Ephesus. And so here we see this battle being waged and Jesus clearly is being taught as the one who is supreme over all the powers and forces of evil. And while Jesus is being proclaimed, and notice though it says there in verse 18, uh, sorry, verse 17, the Lord Jesus was being magnified. He's the one who's being presented to them as the, as the chief and supreme one. And as they're declaring him as the victor over Satan and the forces of evil, what happened then? as Christ is magnified, then it comes to where our hearts become aware of how sin robs Christ of His glory. Sin and compromise in our lives and the lives of God's people is that which undermines His glory. And you'll notice here there came a time when the followers of Jesus came under conviction of sin. Their love for Christ resulted in their renouncing all devotion to things that were spiritually compromising. How could they, they began to say, they began to think, how could we possibly honor Jesus and love Him and affirm our devotion to Him who died to destroy the works of the devil while at the same time secretly engaging in these kinds of occultic activities. And so what did they do? They responded, verse 19, with earnest, humble repentance. There was acknowledgement and clear admission to everyone they didn't care who was learning about what it is that was going on, but they made it known to everyone that these former practices were no longer compatible with their devotion to Christ. They confessed, and they renounced their sin publicly. They burned their books, all these books of secret magical spells, and they estimated the value of them, which I think is fascinating. Somebody took the time to sort of calculate, what are we talking about here, the value of these books? And putting it in today's dollars, some commentators are saying $50 million, the value. You say, well, wait a minute. Why did they sell them and take the money and donate them to the kingdom? First of all, they don't want anyone else to use them. That's dishonoring to Christ. And secondly, they were showing as clearly as they knew how to demonstrate their intent to make a clean break with that which was dishonoring to Christ. They, didn't, they don't want any, anything to happen as a result of their choices, to somehow advance the kingdom of Satan or the occultic world. And so as I have meditated over this text, I think that one of the quotes that's in your notes there just jumps off the page. Kevin DeYoung, regret feels bad about past sins, but repentance turns away from past sins. There's a turning away here that was decisive, that was obvious, that was powerful. I wonder if there are some among us here who are secretly compromising with sin. That as we are being discipled, as we think more and more about the implications of the gospel and the privileges of the new covenant, is there a need for us to make a clean and decisive break with the old ways of sin that oftentimes can linger in our hearts and lives? Is there a need to make our allegiance known to Jesus Christ to other people in such a way that whether it's your smartphone, which becomes if it's utilized for the purposes of leading your mind and leading your heart in the direction of like a a, a temple of idols, which beckons you to, to commit spiritual adultery by viewing pornography or to feed your greedy heart with constantly looking at things that make you and lead you to be discontented in life. It may serve as a mouthpiece for you to use social media to gossip to other people. If that becomes a tool of which that is leading you into sin, are you willing to say, you know, I can't handle this. I don't need this. Because I love Christ more than I love sin. Have you subscribed perhaps to some form of entertainment on HBO or some other form of subscription services? And what you're viewing Various forms of entertainment that are, you know full well, are compromised. I can't get over. It. I've been reading articles online. I don't know what the show. I've never seen it. I've read about it, Game of Thrones. Apparently, if you speak out and say. Apparently, somehow this is an HBO program, and there is all sorts of very graphic nudity. And sex in this particular series, Christians are saying, well. I just sort of need to be able to talk to the culture and I have to understand as part of my being relevant. What what way of looking at things that are clearly dishonored? Would you play such a thing if Jesus is sitting in the room and feel comfortable looking at that when Christ is right there with you? Well, he is. Are there DVDs that we need to get rid of that are in our homes? I don't know what exactly where you're struggling. I don't know what kind of forms of sin that may be among us. Only the Holy Spirit can bring these things to light. But I hope that we'll all humble ourselves, that we'll align ourselves with what the psalmist prayed in Psalm 119, 104. He says, I gain understanding from your precepts, from your word. And therefore, I hate every wrong path. The more I read the word, the more I hate Things that I do that dishonor Christ. There may need to be, for some of us, a need to confess our sin to fellow believers in order to see that break become clean and definitive and finalized, to put to death those things, to destroy, to cut off, to eliminate, to break off any kind of allegiance that we have in our lives to, to the evil one whatever has captured our heart to compromise our commitment to Christ, do it today. Do not delay. Otherwise, apart from that, how else would the word of the Lord, going back to the text, verse 20, how else would the word of the Lord ever grow mightily and ever prevail if God's people are dabbling and compromising and unconsecrated before Him? If we're not living holy lives, My prayer is that we live in a culture of materialism and sensuality and demonic spiritism. The same work of the Holy Spirit He did there in the book of Acts in transitioning in Ephesus. May He do that work among us today. Let's pray. Our Father, as we I've reflected on amazing, powerful progress of redemption. To see the power of the gospel change lives to the point where people take things that in the eyes of the world are of tremendous value, things you would never let go of, to see them actually not only let go of them, but destroy them is a sign of how radical the gospel comes to us in its amazing, transformative power. So Holy Spirit, have your transforming way among us, I pray. I pray that you would bring to light whatever secret sins are have captured the hearts of your people here. I pray that there are some among us, Lord, who are merely professors of followers of Christ, but have never truly surrendered to Christ and never really embraced him as Lord, have never really totally surrendered to Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would work by your Spirit to bring them into the kingdom, that there would be a break with sin, a break with self, a break with any kind of compromise, so that we might lead lives that honor Christ, that we might be gospel ambassadors who are holy and fully devoted to you, our Lord Jesus. So, Lord, by your Spirit, have your way among us, we pray. Help us to surrender. Help us to find the treasures of the gospel to be so valuable that we're willing to give up anything and everything that we might know Christ and be found in him. We pray in his name. Amen.